Welcome to this week's exciting and special episode of Pour Another Round, where we're here to discover and share the stories behind usually the breweries filling up your glass. But today, we're celebrating one year of Pour Another Round and have a very special treat for you all. We don't have a brewery on today. Rather, we have Joe Henry Jr. from J. Henry & Sons Bourbon in Dane, Wisconsin. I talk about J. Henry so much on this podcast, I couldn't be more pumped to have to have gotten the chance to sit down with with Joe Jr. and talk about the J. Henry story. And not only do you talk about J. Henry a lot, but you also drink a lot of J. Henry, Jonathan. So it was it was super cool. Uh, I, I've had my fair share of, of J. Henry as well, but it was super cool to sit down with Joe Henry Jr. himself and drink some of his own bourbon as he walked us through the tasting process and through the the mm-hmm. whole you know situation that that he does uh, to blend barrels and and whatnot so that was that was super awesome and joe definitely has an appreciation for the history of the henry farm as well so it was super interesting to hear him tell all of those stories of how they came to be what they are now today and as i mentioned this is a super special episode for us because this episode officially marks one year since we released the very first episode of pour another round so cheers to everyone who's listened to and supported pour another round Throughout the last year, we definitely wanted to toast to you with some high-quality bourbon, and that is Jay Henry. So, grab yourself your fanciest beer or a bourbon, if you fancy, and enjoy our conversation with Jay Henry and Sons from Dane, Wisconsin. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Cameron. We We like like beer. beer. Some of the best stories start with beer. Now it's time to make beer the story. Pour another round and drink with us as we explore the stories behind your favorite beers and breweries. Today we are so excited to be sitting here talking with J. Henry & Sons Bourbon, located here in Dane, Wisconsin. We've got here um, Joe Henry Jr. And Joe, thanks so much for, for being with us here at... Um, Jay Henry and Dane, and and talking all about your bourbon. Yeah, thanks for coming out, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. And this is a this is a big deal to have Jay Henry on the show because I'm pretty sure Jonathan talks about Jay Henry like once every other episode <laughs> or something like that. So it's yeah. it's definitely one of his favorites, and I've had plenty of uh, Jay Henry bourbon myself. So also like one of my favorites. My, my mom found you guys as she was following you, and she's like, "Well, we got to get on here since this guy's such a fan." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I've met your mom Liz, you know, quite a few times too, just being down here, and and she knows my wife Amy as well. I, I pretty much any time bourbon comes up on the show, I, I I do a pitch for Jay Henry and ask if they've tried Jay Henry, and if not, then they need to. Nice. So, I've I've been an ambassador for you guys. Awesome, thank you. <laughs> of course. So it's a full family affair here. So I guess yeah. before I'm gonna I'm gonna cut in front of Jonathan's first question here, because talk about like who the players are involved as it all sits right now. Yeah, so uh, I mean, as you guys saw when you drive in, we're we're still a fully operational seed farm. So our primary business right now is growing hybrid seed corn, which. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can get into that a little bit if you want, because it's really tied in yeah, kind of sure. directly into how we got into this. So my grandpa started that farm or bought this property in 1946. We've primarily been raising hybrid seed corn on this property since since then, and we still do. So we own a little over 400 acres here on this property. We own maybe another 600 acres kind of near Poinette and Portage, and then we rent out you know, anywhere from five to 1500 acres a year up in Adams County to kind of cover all of our acres there. Yeah. 
So that's primarily been what my dad, uh, Joe Sr., has been up to for the better part of 50 years now, which is kind of wild to think about <laughs> yeah. that. So he was a seed corn farmer his entire life and then started this bourbon company more of like a passion side project that sure. now has turned into something that could Much very bigger. easily yeah, <laughs> eclipse like the farming side of things, which is not what any of us expected. You know, and he's just this crazy farmer filling one of our old barns up with whiskey barrels when I was in high school. So he's still actively involved in the production side of the seed corn farming, also uh, helping us with all the distillation. But we do still distill out of 45th Parallel um, up in oh. New Richmond. <laughs> We're looking to bring that in-house, hopefully within the next couple of years. But he's still really involved with everything there. My mom designed our labels bottle, everything, still is very involved with all of our marketing. And I was like the only sales rep. And I guess I still am, but my my jobs kind of got eliminated with the pandemic. You know? sure. Nobody wants a whiskey sales rep coming into a bar <laughs> when they've been closed for eight months. And People just my, want whiskey in their homes because that's yeah, how I was anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then my little brother is kind of involved part-time. He'll help us out with tastings and stuff. Okay. Um, but he currently works at Epic. And that is Jack? Yep. Yeah, okay. Jack. Uh, doesn't everyone in Madison work at Epic at some point I think in life? So yeah, <laughs> it seems like it. I left uh, Madison and went to Chicago. That's the only reason I didn't end up there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and and in addition to your your mom Liz doing the marketing stuff, she's a self appointed bourbon babe, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what it says on her card. I think <laughs> very cool, and 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 also a form uh, former Alice in Dairyland, and so very involved in the egg community her entire life pretty much too. Yeah. I mean, that's why we're so tied into the agricultural industry. Um, it really goes very hand in hand. You know, these are not two separate entities. Mm -hmm. uh, Henry Farms and Henry Farms Prairie Spirits are really like intertwined completely. Sure. And yeah, lesbian and Alice in Dairyland was pretty crazy. I don't know if you saw her photo downstairs yeah. in the, in the entryway. And then my dad is a master agriculturalist for the state of Wisconsin. Okay. So, you know, a lot of good history there that, that really ties into bourbon because you really need to start with high quality inputs mm -hmm. to come with to that a high quality output kind of at the end of the day. So speaking of history, take us back to the beginning uh, in the, the farm. Yeah. Your family farm has been in your family since 1946. And, you know, take us back to how things have really transpired to to now making bourbon here yeah. at the farm going from the seed business to to adding the bourbon to the to the So puzzle. the uh yeah now now I'll get to talk about seed corn a little bit and bore yeah. everybody cuz they're listening <laughs> to a bourbon podcast. I'm here to learn cuz I don't know anything about seed corn or regular corn. I just like corn on the cob and here we yeah. are. Yeah, there you go. So, um so seed corn is uh fundamentally a lot different than most of the corn that people grow, you know, we're in a, the dairy state of America. So everybody's mm -hmm. got dairy cows everywhere and they grow corn on their land or wheat or rye or whatever um, in order to feed their cattle the following year. So they're growing that with a very intent purpose of, you know, just feeding animals. What we're doing is we're actually growing the seed that that farmer would buy um, the next year and then put in the ground and grow for his or her feed. So that's why we have to take quite a lot more care into the production of this crop because 
you know, it's just like people, if you incest corn, like you're going to come up with abnormalities (laughs) down the line and genetic defects and stuff like that. So the way that we do this is we actually grow a hybrid corn, um, with a male and a female of two separate varietals. And the way that we do this is we grow one, uh, male row, um, that's going to be your pollinator essentially. And then you grow four female plants kind of alongside of it. So if you ever look at a field and you're like, wow, why does every fourth plant look a little taller or a little weirder? That's going to be a seed corn plant or a field because what we're trying to accomplish is creating this new hybrid, creating these uh, different varietals um, that are ideal for that specific farmer uh, in their soil type and weather conditions, pesticides, herbicides, all the different things that they use. We kind of customize um, our crop based off of these huge list of different varietals that are active in the industry and crossbreed them more or less to create the ideal crop for that farmer's land source purpose, all those different factors. So the way that we do that is you got that one male row, four female rows, you detassel all the female plants so that they don't throw pollen and pollinate themselves right around July. Then the male row will pollinate all the females. You destroy the male and then harvest the resulting uh, AB cross, essentially. Then we take a lot of care and time into processing it because that germ of the kernel needs to be intact. It needs to be a viable seed. So we can't just, you know, throw it into a bin and forget about it because <laughs> mm-hmm. then it'll die. And, you know, it's kind of this is a, a, a methodology or a theory that we've held at Henry Farms and uh, Jay Henry is the same process as if you sell a, a farmer a bad bag of corn. Like if nothing grows, their livelihood could be screwed that year. And so we take that same approach into every single bottle of our bourbon. You know, if you sell one bad bottle of whiskey to somebody, they might never come back to you. Right. Um, and so we want to sell every single bottle with that level of quality and really just making sure that all of our loving fans will keep coming back. So the reason I'm talking about all this is because we've been raising seed corn on this property for over 75 years now. We're going to be a centennial farm um, in like 20, 25 years, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, That's a farm that has been in the family for 100 plus years. And the reason I'm saying this is because we use a very specific, unique red heirloom varietal of hybrid seed corn that was developed in 1939 by UW Madison's Ag Research Department in a very similar process as to what I just described. And so that corn um, was actually developed to be more nutritious for local dairy farmers uh, here in South Central Wisconsin. And are you guys familiar with the idea of uh, terroir, like with wine? No, go go into it. Yeah. So terroir is a French term. Uh, Essentially, all it is, is in the most basic way to explain it, it's capturing the flavor and essence of a specific region and translating that into a wine or a spirit or a food stuff or, you know, whatever. So, so like, like when, uh, I've, I've watched some documentaries on like becoming a master sommelier and they can pick out which region it is based on this process and how it's basically the, the specificity of that area, the yeah. flavor profiles or whatever come out through that. Exactly. And it's, it's really popular in the wine industry. So it's like dependent on your soil condition. The easiest example I have is, uh, like a Malbec wine. 
you know, like a red varietal of grape. A lot of people now think that that's like an Argentinian varietal because a lot of common popular red Malbecs come from Argentina now Mm -hmm. because they found that they grow really well at these high altitudes. But that was actually a French varietal that was developed in somewhere in France, you know, several hundred years ago. And then it only recently has been brought within the last couple hundred years to Argentina in those South American climates. Okay. And the difference in flavor profile is, you know, I, I'm not that great at wine, <laughs> but maybe a sommelier can tell the specific nuances and differences. But there's huge differences between where you grow specific grapes where you grow specific corn, the climate around here, you know, our climate here is completely different than it is in Kentucky. Um, Our soil type is completely different here. And so all of these factors factor into that kind of idea or that theory of what terroir really means in the spirits industry. And like I said, this is a concept that's been around for hundreds of years in the wine industry, hundreds of years in different food sources, you know, Another good example is like Spanish ham or Wagyu beef from Mm -hmm. Japan. Like you can grow those same or raise those same breeds of pigs or cows, but the meat's going to taste totally different if you raise it in America or Australia or Japan. And so it's really just that idea of environment carrying through to the things that we consume. Well, and while we're talking about this topic, I want to jump ahead just a little bit here. Like... Bourbon. I think a lot of people think it's got to come from Bourbon County in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So how, like, how you guys are making bourbon, that's more of a terroir thing, not necessarily a legality for like champagne has to be made in champagne, but bourbon is not the same situation. Yeah. So like champagne is a good example. You have to make it in the champagne region of France. Cognac is a, another one. I mean, the, the French have kind of dominated that. Like every region in France <laughs> seems to have their own have little their thing. thing. Yeah, <laughs> that you can only make there. And every, that's all that everybody does. It's kind of cool. But because the bourbon industry has really thrived in three counties in Kentucky for the last 200 plus years, like you don't see a lot of this idea of terroir happening only until very recently within probably the last 15, 20 years with this explosion of craft spirits kind of coming up all over the United States. And now what you're starting to see is sort of these like regional flavor profiles coming in. Like the Pacific Northwest has a much different climate than Texas. Great. You know, very temperate, cool, very humid all year round. That'll affect your maturation process throughout your aging. Versus something that's really arid, dry, extremely hot. You know, Texas gets up to 140 degrees sometimes. And those are going to impose extremely different flavors on your whiskey and your bourbon. And so bourbon just needs to be made in the United States. But nobody, like I said, nobody's done it outside of those three counties in Kentucky Mm -hmm. until really like the last 10, 15 years, which is, it's an extremely exciting uh, time to be a bourbon aficionado or somebody that's just getting into it even yeah because you're starting to see all these different regionalities everybody's kind of trying to play off of uh what makes that unique region special and probably the next 10 to 15 years you're gonna start just because whiskey takes a long time to age you're gonna start seeing a lot of cool things come out of these smaller kind of regional craft distilleries so is is the the climate of wisconsin favorable to bourbon 
Yeah, it, it plays a huge factor into it. And like the grains that you use, should I finish? I'll finish talking about the corn and then I'll go okay. into the sure. maturation process. So, so this corn was developed 1939, UW-Madison's Ag Research Department. It was a four-way hybrid. So what they had to do was cross these two parent strains and these two parent strains and then cross those two parent strains to create like this grandchild of corn that was mm-hmm. ideal for raising and it was the most nutritious thing on the market in south central wisconsin and it was sold to local farmers my grandfather raised it here on our property um until like the mid 70s when gmo grains started to become really popular and when gmos started to hit the market like these heirloom grains really just couldn't keep up with production and yield and stuff like that so no farmer in their right mind was going to grow this, you know, fancy red <laughs> corn, although it's probably 20 to 30% more nutritious than sure. what you could produce from a GMO. It, it yields maybe one fifth. Okay. So we get maybe if we're lucky 75 bushels an acre out of the, this red heirloom corn, whereas GMO grains and number two yellow dent corn, which is what everybody else uses in the industry, that's like 250 bushels per acre. So it's a business decision at that point. Yeah, it, it's just <laughs> it, that's all it is. And so um, this corn varietal would have gone completely extinct. More or less, nobody was going to grow it commercially. But because the university has it's an ag research university, um, so they have a library of all these different corn, wheat, rye, all these different grains that they've produced over the years. And they keep them in this temperature and humidity controlled vault that's somewhere on campus on the ag department. And it's primarily just a research library. So they can go back and see like how much things have changed or if somebody wants to write their thesis on heirloom grains or stuff like that. Wow. There's another one, I think, like up in Norway, that's more of like a post-apocalyptic <laughs> like food vault in case... Okay we all nuke each other and you got to like re reinvigorate humanity's food source. There's this mm-hmm. vault in the Arctic circle that has grains from all over the world that we could hypothetically go there and repopulate our own food source. So that's fun. I never knew that. Yeah. Wow. Check it out. It's a pretty cool. I don't know exactly where it is, but just look up. Hopefully like, no one knows where yeah, it is. Yeah, actually. Probably, nobody's <laughs> supposed to know where it is, um, but just look up like Norway seed vault and it'll come up and it's a really cool concept. Um, like I said, the one in Madison is just research purposes. So nothing, and it's lucky that it's there because when my dad wanted to start this in about 2005, he, he wanted to capture that idea of terroir that we've kind of been talking about. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that with, you know, just number two yellow dent corn that everybody else is growing. It's gotta be a little bit more unique. So he remembered the red color of it growing up here on our property because, um, he was born in the fifties and that's kind of right on the tail end of when, before we got into GMOs. So he remembered the unique red color of it, remembered the purpose of it. It was more nutritious varietal. And, you know, luckily we had some connections at the university and they actually held a small seed sample back for these research purposes. And so they loaned us, uh, like 1200 kernels out of that seed vault and which comes in like a manila envelope (laughs) and we're used to growing 
you know, 1500 plus acres of corn, you know, we're getting 80 pound bags of seed (laughs) and they hand us a manila envelope. Like Jack and the Beanstalk thing going on right now. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And so we get this envelope with 1200 kernels in it. Like, oh God, this is going to be a little rough. Um, So it took three full growing cycles to kind of repropagate that specific corn. Now we're the only people growing that specific varietal. We really only grow it right here on our home farm property. We haven't experimented with other regions yet, but we're also combining it with some different heirloom varietals to make it kind of the ideal corn for making bourbon. So, Well, and from what you just said, that red heirloom corn is more nutritious than the number two yellow dent. So I'm just going to jump a few steps ahead and assume that this bourbon is just it's nutritious healthier. for me. It's healthier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Don't let anybody from the health department hear that. <laughs> well, so I guess going back to the, the history of it all, your grandfather started this family farm in 1946. Yep. Is he from Wisconsin or is he... So my great-grandparents actually came over here from France. Okay. So okay. when we start talking about some of our products... A lot of our techniques in whiskey making are influenced by like French blending techniques from ancient cognac and Armagnac distilleries Mm. and stuff like that. They bought a farm in southwestern Wisconsin near Basco, an area called Frenchtown. So that's about two out, maybe an hour and a half hour from here. And then he bought this farm in the in the forties when. Uh, seed corn was really kind of the hot thing in, in farming, which I don't know what's ever the hot thing in farming, but, <laughs> right. and my dad will hate me if he hears me say that, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we're, my dad was, this was actually the house that he grew up in. Oh, that's really okay. cool. Yeah. So my office was my grandparents' bedroom, which is a little weird, <laughs> um, but yeah, my grandma, I guess, still haunts this place in a good way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about the history of the farm. Let's talk about Joe Sr.'s decision to kind of get into that hobby of of making whiskey and how that really turned into a little bit of a Henry empire. Yeah. So we, he he just kind of had this idea. I think he went, he's always been curious about it and really distilling at its core was started by farmers who had extra extra stock so any any uh seed that you didn't need for the rest of the year that you had excess of you didn't want it to go bad right so you would ferment it and distill it into something more valuable it's a value-added ag product at its core and so we were trying to go back to those roots of you know this is all coming from our farm we're just adding value to the grains that we're already you know maybe have a little bit extra of and that was sort of his idea going into it and why we wanted to capture that flavor and, and uh, idea of what South Central Wisconsin looks like. So you said that in 2005 is when your dad, Joe Sr., started the process? That's of, when of they, uh, so they loaned us those kernels. I, I think 2005 was when he went down to Kentucky okay. and finally had the idea like, you know what? I'm going to try and do this sort of thing. They got all this corn coming in on rail cars, going to these massive (laughs) distilleries in Kentucky, and he's been growing corn his whole life. Mm -hmm. So, okay, why don't we start doing a value-added process to make make bourbon out of the corn that we grow? 
it took three years to repropagate that kernel from okay. 2006 to about 2009 to get it from 1,200 kernels to a little over 100 acres, which is kind of what we needed to put barrels away. And then in 2009, we finally put our first uh, barrels away for aging. They were 53-gallon barrels, and we didn't we didn't release anything until it was five years old. So 2015 was actually like our first product release. And you, and then you barreled 2010, 11, 12, all the way up until the first release. So you're just hoping that you guys knew what you were doing without ever having a finished product to (laughs) to make sure it was good. So that's, that's a lot of trust and patience. I don't have that patience. Trust in the process. And, you know, luckily we, uh, we work with a good distiller who had some experience, um, you know, 45th parallel. And we got linked up with this, uh, lady consultant, Nancy Fraley, um, who's a professional noser and blender. And she tasted our stuff, heard the story at about three years old and immediately kind of was gravitated towards, um, towards like the trajectory of the brand. So we're really fortunate to work with her. She was trained in a by a tenth generation cognac distiller, which is also where some of our like blending and uh, different techniques come from. So yeah, it's all sort of this whole story coming together, and that's what ended up in that first bottle in 2015. Wow! So we. In front of us have have maple bourbon old fashions. Which uh, which of your bourbons are used in these cocktails? Too? So this is our small batch five year bourbon. It's a blend of twenty different barrels that we kind of layer on top of each other. So each barrel's got its own unique nuance and flavor profile. And you asked about weather, and so we can talk about that a little bit and how that affects each barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use our small batch bourbon like three dashes of chipotle cocoa bitters from bitter cube out of milwaukee some maple syrup that we barrel age in our used whiskey barrels and then a little like a tiny little bit of cherry like luxardo cherry juice okay just to give it a little bit of fruitiness on on all of your bottles um you've got the name you know jay henry your the your your part of your brand is Jay Henry and Sons Bourbon. Why the decision to to put your name right on on the bottles and be a part of the brand? I guess it was kind of just an ode to the level of quality that we're always tied to. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to that that bag of seed to a farmer. You know, if we had Henry seeds and it it wasn't working, like that's a direct representation of you as kind of a person. And so we're really proud of our brand and where it's come and every bottle is kind of a direct representation of all the hard work that we've put into it. Plus I think it makes you care a little bit more if your name is on the <laughs> bottle and like, yeah. but yeah, we just wanted something that is going to be kind of generational tied into the family history, the family story. I mean, it's all kind of worked in together and there was, there wasn't really another name that we could come up with. <laughs> And the, the the label is a signature, Jay Henry. Is that Joe Sr.'s actual signature? Yeah, it's kind of like a stylized version of his his signature. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've talked about some of this bourbon. Should we pour our first round of bourbon? And what do you want to talk about here? Yeah. So what did you just pour for us here, Joe? <clears throat> um, so this is our flagship product. This is what we came out with. Wow, almost seven years ago now, um, which is kind of crazy to think about. (laughs) 
But this is our small batch bourbon. It's a blend of 20 different barrels. The reason we do that is to create consistency across each each batch. So because we're not huge, like massive distilleries, the reason they're able to create such consistency across products is, you know, you're blending like a thousand barrels at a time. Yeah. And so your, I guess your difference across each barrel from like the median line, you know, your min and your max uh, delta is a lot. I mean, it's more spread out. Whereas if you have 20 barrels, we have to be a little bit more strategic in where we're putting different flavor profiles. So through the maturation process, every barrel is going to have slightly different, unique nuances to it. And the most difficult part of my job is to take all these different barrels. So let's say we're, we're producing like a hundred in a year or we're dumping a hundred this month or, you know, whatever. It's just an easy number (laughs) to do math with. So we'll do let's say four different small batches. So 20, 20, 20, and 20. Each one of those batches has to taste just like the one before and just like the one after. And so part of my job is each one of those 20 barrels trying to find similarities across each batch. Um, But it's also to create complexity because each one of these barrels, you know, has strengths and weaknesses and different nuances and things like that. And so you really want to capture the strengths of a specific barrel and kind of hide not the flaws or but the shortcomings of it. And that's how you can layer different barrels on top of each other and create these blends that are not only more complex than they would be kind of on their own, but to be consistent across each batch um, is really the goal with this product. I have a lot of follow-up questions on that, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm going to start with the the consistency. Like, yes, obviously, consistency, consistency is important. Quality, I think, is is the utmost importance. But isn't that sort of the the funness of, you know, drinking a 2020 bourbon versus a 2018 bourbon? Because you do have a little bit of those nuances that fluctuate year to year. So, yes, you want it to be similar, but it's okay to be a little bit different? Yeah. So, um, the easiest answer is we have a different product for that. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, for this, because it's it's used in bars a lot, it's kind of our most flagship. It's our most most recognizable product. Like that has a specific flavor profile uh, that people like, and so you don't want somebody that likes this product or has liked it for several years to go to the shelf and buy something and be like, "Whoa, this is totally different." Mm-hmm, sure, it might be better, it might be worse, but. You just don't want it to be different. You want it to really be the same so that every time people know what they're getting and because they like what they're getting, they're going to keep on coming back because they know what what it's all about. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's like the main goal for the consistency side of things. We can talk a little bit more about the uniqueness of each barrel Mm -hmm. uh, with the next product that we're going to try. So before before we get into the the tasting of this actual one that we just poured here, uh, my other follow-up question is you you said that you're the one that sort of blends it all. Mm -hmm. So is that... Is that a palette that you've grown and been able to train, or have you always sort of had a, a hyper palette that allows you to be able to play around with that and really pick out the nuances of different things? Yeah. So, um, like Nancy, she's got like a hyper palette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's a consultant we work with. She'll be able to smell and taste things that are, you know, I'm still working towards, but she's kind of got a naturally gifted uh, palette. 
Um, she can remember things from when she was like two years old oh by gosh. taste Wild. and smell. Yeah. Like, you know, just having that sensory library is, yeah. is kind of a gift in my opinion. I would say I appreciate a lot of things. Like I, I think I've been able to train my palate in a way over the last almost 10 years now, I've really tried to train and develop it just by tasting a lot, you know, tasting a lot of different things, a lot of different bourbons, picking out the nuances, a lot of different types of spirits as well. Sounds like a tough job. Yeah. <laughs> it's all market research. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, my dad just thinks I drink too much. Yeah. But. <laughs> like, Dad, this is your fault. Yeah, yeah you, you started, started this. <laughs> Uh, but in all seriousness, like it does take a lot of practice right. and training and there is certain things that you can do, you know, just write down different flavors when you're, when you're tasting something new or even something that you've had a bunch before is one of your favorite go-to products, like write down maybe five to 10 things that you smell and five to 10 things that you maybe don't even start with that, like three to five. So mm-hmm. start with like the three to five most common flavors that you can smell just when you're nosing it. And I, and I think that's maybe where people already get hung up because when they smell it, maybe they get some plum and they look at, you know, they read the label or whatever, like there's no plum in here. Why would I smell plum? So it's not necessarily that what they smell is in that product. It's just characteristics that are similar across you know plum and wine or whatever the case is well and that's kind of why i don't i i don't really like sharing like my personal tasting notes like the flavor profiles that i'm seeing is because immediately when you say plum now somebody's going to search for that Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. subconsciously you're going to be looking for it and if you don't find it you're going to feel like, oh, shit, am I doing this wrong? Right. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, I, I don't know anything about whiskey. I'm just going to quit. And that's like the complete opposite of what you should do. Like your palate is really just like a, like I call it like a sensory library of everything that you've experienced throughout your life. And so being able to train it is just being able to taste different things and then referring back to that sensory library and being like, okay, so you taste plum in this. Well, is it plum pudding? Is it like sugar-coated plums? Is it just a fresh plum? Is it plum brandy? Like those are four very different flavor profiles. Mm-hmm. But if we all wrote down plum, it could be any one of those things, like hiding deeper inside of that that one word. So that's what I always encourage people to do is just try and dig a little deeper, like caramel or vanilla is, is another really good example. Like vanilla, is it vanilla bean, which is really kind of dry and, yeah. you know, vanilla ice cream, totally different. Vanilla extract, totally different. Uh, or like caramel, like you have salted caramel, you have mm-hmm. burnt caramel, you have caramel toffee. You know, there's a whole just off of one word that you're tasting or smelling or having that sensory experience for, there's so much broader that everybody can kind of help push themselves. And I think that's how you can really help yourself enjoy a lot of these things a little bit more is Mm -hmm. just kind of pushing yourself to, to dig a little bit deeper in it. Great. So we got this Wisconsin straight bourbon whiskey aged five years, Jay Henry in front of us. So walk us through the proper way to taste this. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the specific whiskey here. Yes, we got uh, some Glencairn glasses. These are actually Scottish because 
Scotland's been making whiskey a lot longer than America, <laughs> and they've figured out the glassware for it. But they're designed to create kind of a focal point of all the aromas at the pinnacle, like maybe an inch or two above either this glass. Okay. So it's not like wine where you want to get your nose super deep in there. Get a little burn in there. Yeah. <laughs> so wine is, you know, 12 to 14% alcohol. Whiskey is usually 40 plus. So you're going to burn if you try and get as close to that liquid mm -hmm. as you would normally with wine, because all those alcohols are going to evaporate and hit you right in the face, essentially. So keep it a little lower uh, off the glass, kind of try and get a lot of the aroma. So when I'm tasting or blending or analyzing everything, I go a lot more off of the aroma and my sense of smell than I do off of uh, my actual taste. The first is because normally your sense of smell is stronger. And the second is your palate gets worn out a lot quicker. So just the fact of having alcohol like on your tongue for eight hours a day, <laughs> like you're gonna you're gonna exhaust your palate and your sense of taste, and your your sense of smell does get exhausted as well, but it does so at a much kind of slower rate. Um, so I always try and get a lot of the analysis done on that sense of smell, and then we started with some cocktails, which kind of warms your your mouth up to it a little bit. But if you're starting with just a glass of whiskey. That first taste is always going to be like the harshest because, you know, you've been drinking iced tea or water or juice all day and yeah. then six or seven o'clock rolls around or maybe earlier if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're drinking, bam, like hard alcohol. So that first taste, I really like to swish it all around my mouth, make sure everything is coated, make sure it covers all points of your tongue because even though you might not think like salty is a flavor in whiskey, like there are salt, there's aspects to every flavor profile. And then texture and mouthfeel is also really important as well. You know, you want something that's rounded, that doesn't hurt, that's not angular, that kind of coats your whole mouth in a really pleasant way. So that's why you want to get that first taste to just sort of acclimate yourself. Like when I'm doing my tastings, or analysis, I'll just take a like a mouthful of of cask strength whiskey and like swish it around my mouth like mouthwash. Okay. And that like and then I spit it out. But <laughs> <laughs> um but then it really kind of sets your tone for the rest of the day, essentially. And so you have you know, we're we're tasting one of your bourbons here. You have here at the family farm here in Dane, Wisconsin, you have you offer tastings and tours, and um, so talk about the the experience and the and the opportunity that people have to visit here. Yeah, so we are about 20, 30 minutes just north of Madison. Mm -hmm. uh, we're right off ninety ninety four. They actually built uh, they built the highway through our fields in the fifties. <laughs> They just declared eminent domain and said we're building a highway nice here. Nice of them. <laughs> <laughs> so it sucked for the last 70 years, but now it's kind of a good marketing opportunity, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, right here in Dane, uh, we grow all of the corn, all the heirloom red corn, all the wheat, all the rye right here on the property. And then the tasting room that we have is the original farmhouse of the property that we've converted into kind of like a little bar uh, seating tasting room area. Um, then we have two Rick houses and we're hopefully going to be building another one this spring. So our total capacity will probably be 
over 10,000 barrels on property wow. at that point. Um, once we finish that one and it's totally full and that's all happening a lot quicker than, than we've expected. <laughs> <laughs> one of those rickhouses is from like mid 1800s. So yeah, is one, there, <laughs> is there different flavor profiles that you notice from an old one versus like a brand new one that you'll build next year? So we're, we're kind of just starting to dip into the new rickhouse. So that was finished in March of 2017, actually 2018. So we're kind of a year away from dipping into that that rickhouse's stock. We've only just now turned that first first hundred year old plus dairy barn that we converted into our rickhouse, and uh, it's it's crazy. You think. Like we need a few, we need like four or five turns to determine like, okay, this row of this rack, this high up is going to have that sort of similar flavor profile. Mm-hmm. Like we won't know that for another 30 years. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to be a very patient person. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Whiskey is definitely not a fast game. <laughs> when you were, uh, when you were growing up, you know, your dad started this 15 or this idea 15 years ago or so did you like see yourself going into the whiskey business or did you have aspirations to get away from farming i and mean here you are just drinking for yeah. your job now <laughs> i wanted to get the hell away from here to be honest <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they all they all know it i think that's kind of why my dad started the whiskey company is like well i know both my fun my son's aren't really interested in farming. So I'll start making whiskey and then force them. Suck them back in. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, I've taken a huge, a bigger role out on the farm. I've been on the production side for a couple years now. And then the whiskey is sort of growing um, continuously with that. So I'm happy to be back. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I'd I'd be happy to be here all the time as well. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, when people are visiting here in Dane, they can... um, that you said you've, the tasting room is right here in in the original farmhouse, and and you've got the the tour where people can actually go out and see the rickhouses. They can have a cocktail down in the at the bar downstairs, and, mm-hmm. um, and do the the tasting and and um, and and have the get the whole spiel kind of like, yeah, like have you're some doing with us. Have, a, have the whole experience. Yeah. Take some photos in the rickhouse. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to do something like this this year. But in the future, I'm also going to try and set up kind of a more like ag central, ag, like focused tour okay. where we go through maybe a couple parts of our production plant. Oh, sure. Talk about the how important it is to, you know, use high quality grains um, and what we do a little bit differently and how we treat everything that makes Jay Henry so good. So we're still working on that that's a long ways out but it should be a fun little uh addition to our regular tour yeah and so you talked about the the uniqueness of of your mash bill and um you know what else makes you know outside of of Kentucky there aren't a lot of you know other bourbon options you know in the United States and so what makes Jay Henry outside of of that mash bill unique and and different compared yeah. to all the other bourbons that are out there <laughs> Totally. I think, well, I believe that the first is definitely those grains, you know, having unique grains that no one else in the world has really access to gives us kind of a a leg up and a very unique flavor profile. The climate here is extremely unique. Uh, Like Madison, I think 
a couple of years ago had one of the widest variances of temperature throughout the year where we have like a hundred degree days, which you'll get everywhere on the equator, mm-hmm. you know, pretty consistently. But then also we had negative 50 degree weather <laughs> in the winter time. And so that up and down weather is, is good for bourbon. Yeah, it's extremely important because what's happening to the whiskey barrels is as they get really hot, the pores in the inside of the wood are actually going to expand and kind of open up. And it's like a sponge. They'll absorb the whiskey already in that the inside of that barrel. And that's where 50 plus, 50 or more percent of the flavor is coming from that oak wood, that barrel, the maturation process. So then when it gets really cold, it squeezes it out just like that sponge. It's squishing it all back from the barrel into the liquid inside of it. So that process happening kind of consistent, consistently over the course of several different years, several different seasons, even sometimes on a daily basis, because like it snows every year in, in <laughs> April this year. And yeah. Uh, I mean, it was almost 75 degrees this year, a couple days before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's 10, you know? <laughs> so that has an extremely volatile effect on on the whiskey. And we're extracting a ton of flavor, which I think is really good. That um, also makes the blending of it all, that makes it a little bit more complicated when you have some years that are crazy variants and some years are a little bit more temperate. Yeah, that's why we got to try every one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so obviously the, the corn is, you know, the, the most important product going into it, but the barrels play a huge part of it. You said 50% of the flavor. So do you guys have like a, a cooper you work with or where, where do you get your barrels from? So we, when we started out, we, we were working with several different coopers, which now we work specifically with independent stave company out of Kentucky. They're the, I think the largest privately owned cooperage in America. They're also one of the oldest and they, I'm actually reading a book from them right now and they've got decades worth of experience on what different char levels will do, what different toasting levels will do, what different ages will do. And it's really fascinating to work with a company with that kind of reputation and that experience as such a small producer as we are. Um, we're really fortunate that they're that they're allowing us to work with them, which is kind of cool. So, thanks, Independent Stave, and Chad, <laughs> our sales rep. Excellent. <laughs> you um, talked about how none of your none of the J. Henry bourbons um, are being aged less than five years. Um, five years is kind of that minimum. Um, sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. Um, Bourbon will do that to you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there? You know, you, you've been around obviously longer than five years. Are there? other age ranges that that you're you're kind of trying from time to time as well and that that five years is kind of just that minimum but you're you know there's a 10 year and eight year whatever henry Um, 23 is going to compete with the pappy 23 soon yeah there we go (laughs) hopefully (laughs) so we our primary uh, is that five years next year we're going to be coming out with uh kind of a blend so the small batch is really five to five and a half year old whiskey like nothing younger than five but nothing really older than six and so as that's a great product and like i said with the consistency we want to keep that that consistency but it also limits you in kind of like the flavor profiles that you're allowed to work with 
So next year we're coming out with a blend of like four to I think seven or eight year old bourbon that I've been working with Nancy pretty, pretty exclusively on. The other difference with this is that it's all the same proof. So small batch is always going to be 92 proof, 46% alcohol. This new product we're coming out with is going to be kind of a little bit experimental to play around with some of those different age ranges, some of those different older casks that we've got that have different characteristics to it and also play around maybe with the proof a little bit just to see, you know, if we release this batch at 111, what it, what changes if we release the next batch at 108 or is there even that big of a change? You know, and that's sort of going to be my little project as something to experiment like what do people what do people think of this and see what other age ranges we can play around with to still create a good consistent product but highlight some of the uniqueness of these older casks and some of these different unique barrels that we've got saved away. We came out with a few Patton Rhodes, the one we're going to try next, our five-year, which we have a little bit now, but that one's been pretty pretty low supply over the last couple of years um, just because those are some of the best barrels, single individual casks of our rickhouse every single year. But we came out with some eight-year-old barrels that were really good. We've had a seven-year-old release before. Um, I've got some barrels that are destined for like a 10 plus year old program. And then all of our finished projects are usually six to like five to six or seven years. And then our anniversary blend, our 2021 anniversary blend was five to like nine years old this year. I think there's potentially a misconception that the longer whiskey is aged in a barrel that means the better that it is and that's not necessarily true that's just the more potent it is and the more flavors that's getting pulled out of it so that's going to be a lot more pungent of a flavor so not necessarily better depending on what you prefer yeah i mean it's kind of all all what you're looking for you know if you want a really oaky kind of tannic bourbon and that's what you want like go for something that's 10 12 20 years but if you want something that's kind of rounded and really gentle and has some of the same like bourbon, I guess, characteristics, like five to eight years is kind of that sweet spot for a lot of that stuff. So it's really just what you prefer. I won't say age is always determinant of quality. It does have an effect, but as you kind of become, and what we try and do here is a lot of, a lot of training, you know, a lot of education, just so that you're not going to go out and spend four or 500 bucks on a bottle that's 20 plus years old and then not like it. Well, (laughs) the worst. (laughs) Yeah. Like know what you're going to get by buying that bottle. Like at least be aware if you're buying something that old, there's going to be a lot of tannin extraction. There's going to be a lot of oak flavor in it. So just be aware of those sort of things and know what you're getting into. So you don't disappoint yourself. Um, And so that's what we try and do is just educate people. You know, age is a, a very good determining factor of quality, but it's not the only one. Mm-hmm. There's so many different factors that tie into what makes a final bottle of finished product um, that you really got to start asking questions. And, you know, we're an open book. We'll share whatever we can. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, should we pour another round and you can yeah. share some more whiskey with us and talk about uh, what the specialty of this Patton Road Reserve Cask Strength is? Um, so Patton Road is... Uh, the road that you came in on 
so we're not too creative out here. <laughs> is, that, is that General Patton? Yeah, no, it's I don't even know. It might be <laughs> named after General Patton. I'll have to ask my dad on that. But so this is a single barrel cask strength bourbon. What that means is opposed to the small batch blend, which, like I said, is a blend of 20 different unique barrels. This is going to be one individual cask that through our sensory analysis as a family, we've determined is so good. It's like the best of the best. Usually it's less than five to 10% of our total production every year ends up making it into this product because these barrels are so good. We don't want to proof them down and we don't want to blend them with anything else. They've got such a unique individual character to it that it's just perfect kind of the way it is. So we don't blend it. We don't proof it. It's coming straight from the barrel. So this is kind of like the purest expression uh, of J. Henry bourbon. It's like sticking a straw into like the best casks in a, in a given year. <laughs> and and this one is even more special because we have bottle number one from barrel number 453. So you got the <laughs> yeah. first pull, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> you That's know, why guy? it's up here in my office. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, but I think... The biggest difference I can see across the labels is the the blend is at 46%, which makes it 92 proof. And this one is at 59%. And someone can do the quick math there on one. Yeah, like 118. 118. Yeah. So almost, uh, it's almost 120 proof. But that's where you're going to get a lot of the flavor. Like mm-hmm. if you just put water into an oak barrel, you're not going to extract any of the flavor out mm-hmm. of it. Like all the flavor extraction, all the good flavors that you associate with bourbon are coming because of that interaction with alcohol and the wood and pulling wood sugars and different different chemical compounds from the wood into the uh, into the whiskey. And so like you have to have a, a relatively high proof to extract some of those flavors out of the wood, but not too high because then you're going to extract unfavorable things. Mm-hmm. So these are sort of always in that sweet spot where some of them maybe are 114 and they're a little bit softer, a little bit lighter, but they're just perfect just the way that they are. We've also released uh, single barrels that are like 130, you know, 135 that are just really good, really highly concentrated. You know, it's all just dependent on how, how we think they taste. You know, there's no other like science behind it. It's at the end of the day, it's you're going to put Whatever it in your mouth. Best. Yeah. <laughs> so, because at the end of the day, you have tried every single barrel. Yeah. And you take, you know, rigorous notes on it all and decide, you know, this one was good enough to, uh, put by the time, only in its own bottle. by the time everything gets into a bottle, it's usually been tasted at least twice. Mm-hmm. So, just make sure everybody knows that we're putting as much work into into putting all these products <laughs> out. Like nothing's going out into the market mm-hmm. unless it's been tried and tested. If you don't like it, it's not being bought. No, not at all. <laughs> so was, what was it about this batch here that we're drinking that you decided, yep, that that is so good to put in a bottle rather than what went into the blend? So a little bit of it is uh, is just the like the completeness if that makes sense Mm -hmm. like the complexity and the depth like most of the barrels that we put into small batch are not bad by any means but they're they don't have like you they're good for putting into a blend because Mm -hmm. they'll play well with others you know they're more of like a team player (laughs) so (laughs) you know 
it's kind of a bad analogy I'm trying to think of, but it's like a sports team. You know, you have to have a point guard. You have to have a shooting guard. You have to have a center, but your center is not going to be the one, you know, calling out plays and dribbling the ball down the court <laughs> at the end of the day. Like he's going to be in the paint throwing dunks on people. Yeah. And your shooting guard is going to be out shooting three pointers. So it's not that they're bad. It's that each one of those barrels has a specific role to play in that specific blend. Whereas these are kind of like, I guess to go with basketball, like these are your Michael Jordans. Like they can do everything. Mm -hmm. They can do everything on their own. And they're so good that yes, they, they could play well with others. Like this would be an excellent addition to a small batch or one of our uh, other barrel finish products or some of our higher end stuff. But it's just so good on its own. Like we want to highlight the uniqueness and individuality of that specific cask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this one a lot. And so you guys here at J. Henry have also gotten a lot of international attention too with with your bourbon. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we, uh, I mean, we were really nervous when we entered our first kind of award show. We didn't even have a label approved yet. <laughs> uh, so we submitted... Is it just like a post-it note? Yeah, we submitted some <laughs> bottles with like a duct Joseph tape. signed it. On, yeah, duct tape label. Or I think it it was... Uh, we had gotten the labels approved, but back in back then, several years ago, the, the TTB, which is the uh, like kind of government organization that regulates all uh, spirits... Mm-hmm distilled alcohol and then somehow also tobacco and firearms so like all the fun stuff but they're not really fun people usually <laughs> you'd think they'd yeah, be you'd more think fun. they would be but unfortunately they're usually not um, some of them are that's not to say all of them are not fun but, uh it's the regulating body behind tobacco uh firearms alcohol spirits wine so they didn't they weren't ready for the like boom and craft distilling. So it took several months to get a label approved, designed and out to print, but we wanted to launch our products and we wanted to get some feedback on them because until that point, I think the only people who had tried them were like my parents, Nancy, our family, and then some, some like local bars and liquor stores, um, local distributors, and then like friends and family. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to see, okay, how does this really stack up? Because, you know, all your friends are going to tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to see how it stacked up. And so we, we released this product, our small batch, to San Francisco International Spirits Competition, which is probably one of the most highly acclaimed in the country and in the world. Um, so you just wanted some, you just wanted some feedback. So you sent it to the best of the best. Yeah. Well, we (laughs) sent it to several other ones as well, but the, the issue is you kind of send these all out at the same time. It's usually like around this time of the year and then you don't get any feedback back for several months. So you, we just sent it out to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we started getting like, okay, gold medal back from here, a gold medal back from here. (laughs) Oh shit. We're pretty uh, good at this. Double gold medal. And this was our first product release. And we're like, oh God, I didn't think this was going to (laughs) happen. And uh, it was really humbling because a lot of these award shows are not just, you know, craft distilling or like craft distilling in Wisconsin. It's all the big guys from Kentucky, mm-hmm. all the big guys from Scotland, everybody across America in the craft scene. 
and and we're still scoring and you know some of the like top 100 products top 50 products uh patent road when we released it got a double gold which was like some of the that's one of the most sought after awards in kind of the spirits community is because every judge out of maybe 50 judges has to rank it as a gold medal then it goes into like this bonus round where everybody judges it again against all the gold medal winners and then you got to get a gold medal against all the gold medalists so and that was in 20 2016 i think so it was only the second year after we've been out on the market our first product release of that product and we got a double gold with that one and a double gold with the Bellefontaine the year after. So, yeah, we were pretty excited about all that stuff. <laughs> and that was beating out these, you know, distilleries that have been around forever. The, you know, the, yeah. the Kentucky bourbons and, and bourbons from all over the <laughs> yeah, world. Yeah, it was pretty wild to get that kind of recognition, you know, being two or three years out in the market yeah. and going up against people that have been doing this for several hundred years. And they're all years. like, who the hell is Jay Henry? <laughs> yeah, they don't even have a label. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From Dane, Wisconsin. Yeah. Who are these people? That's, Dane. That's the best thing is to set expectations low with just like, you know, no label on the bottle and then blow them away with like, what's inside oh, the bottle. Mm-hmm. Really <laughs> so it was really it was really exciting. It's been a really wild ride and you know, we we thank everybody that's helped us get here. Like forty fifth parallel, Nancy, all of our distributors, all the all the bars and restaurants and liquor stores locally that have supported us and even unlocally like outside of the state because we're we're still at the end of the day trying to compete with those guys with those guys and gals with much more limited resources than what they have and we're still doing a fairly good job i hope so (laughs) and a lot of we 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 talked to a lot of breweries on pour another round and a lot of breweries are are taking the jay henry barrels once you're done with them too oh yeah using them to to (laughs) brew their beers yeah so we uh as bourbon um bourbon can only be aged in a new charred oak container so you can't use our barrels again you can only use them one time but they're really expensive and so you want to have a way to recoup some of that loss instead of just dumping it out and maybe making furniture um, which is also kind of cool we've got some woodworkers locally that'll make furniture out of them for you but it was also a really fun way to learn about what is essentially one of the first steps in whiskey making which is brewing like you have to ferment your mash in order to make a distillable substance Mm -hmm. and so after fermentation you're really just having this product that's called distiller's beer and so brewers know a ton about everything from grain to to beer so everything other than distillation and maturation they can you know school me on and so it's a really fun way to meet other people in the craft space locally that you know build our network a little bit do a lot of fun collaborations with those beers and just kind of have a good time with it you know yeah like it's fun to use our barrel and give it to somebody and then we're starting to now that we're we're kind of ramped up our production a little bit get some of those barrels back and finish some of our whiskey back in that that beer barrel and so now it's sort of like okay well, what else can we do like what other cool stuff like the 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 one that i just got back a couple weeks ago was a, a maple syrup producer um up in northern wisconsin we gave him a barrel like a year ago he aged maple syrup in it for a year 
And then he brought that barrel back. And now we've got bourbon that has been in there, five-year-old bourbon that's been in there for like two months in this used bourbon maple syrup barrel. That already sounds like my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's tasting really good. It just needs a little bit more time. Um, But that's the same maple syrup that was in your cocktails. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're just trying to find unique ways in... You know, going back to talking about this as a value-added ag product, like we're trying to eliminate as much waste on that chain as possible, make it as efficient as we can, and really add value to not only ourselves, but other local farmers, other local Mm -hmm. producers, other brewers, even other craft distillers in the area. Like, let's just add value because at the end of the day, like we're all competing with Kentucky. So (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. So is that that maple syrup a uh, barrel aged bourbon? Is that something that the intent is to release that once it's ready? Yeah, I'm thinking. I mean, it all depends. I've, we've never done this before, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't really know when we're going to release it. Yeah. Um, but the idea is to have some available here at the tasting room. Sure. Maybe put some out to distribution, but I want to taste it out here with people. It's a little bit more of a controlled environment. Yeah during a tasting here versus like somebody picks up a bottle at a liquor store, you can kind of explain and get feedback a little bit easier here versus launching a new product and not knowing <laughs> what's going to happen to it. Mm-hmm. My uh, One of my favorite winter spirits is Knob Creek Smoked Maple. So, oh, yeah. So when you need some feedback, yeah. I'll, I'll be happy to make, make anything <laughs> <Definitely>. here. <laughs> I'll let you know when it comes out. Great. <laughs> Why don't we uh, pour our, our final round oh, of uh, Jonathan's your been third a, Jonathan's been eyeing up his favorite. So what do we? Uh, what is this one here? Aram Aramaniac. Yeah, I've so, never heard of that. So this is a, a new product we just came out with in October, actually. But it's something that we've kind of been working on, had an idea of since 2018. You you love the Bellefontaine. Yeah. A lot of people have, have really enjoyed that product. And that's um, aged in cognac barrels. That's in cognac barrels. So cognac is, like we said, that a region in France, just north. It's, you know, the south, western, southern uh, cognac region of France. And people love our Bellefontaine. I really love it. And we we've been producing that for about, this will be our sixth year making Bellefontaine. And so we actually took a trip to France with Nancy Fraley in like 2018. Um, and instead of going to the Cognac region, we went to the Armagnac region, okay. which Armagnac is kind of this region directly south of Cognac in France in, a, in an area called Gascony. So it's close to like the Spanish border, um, if you will. And it's a little bit more... Uh, it's similar. It uses some similar grape varietals, but some are different. They have different blending and distillation techniques, but some are also the same. So it's sort of like they're cousins of each other. Like Bellefontaine, Cognac, that's like the elegant, refined, mm-hmm. uh, very, very uh, elegant and refined is kind of the easiest way to just say it because... Armagnac is really this rustic, more rugged, um, kind of not aggressive, but rustic. And I mean, you guys are trying it, so it, it's good. It's really good. I've not had this one before. Um, is this uh, how long has has have you guys had this one out? So we re- we released this in October. Oh, the reason I was talking about this store is we went to 
the Armagnac region of France. Yeah. Um, they are very similar in process to like what we're doing okay. where you have a family farm that owns, you know, a few hundred acres of vineyards uh, and they typically produce wine. Um, and then what's extremely unique about the Armagnac region is instead of each family owning its own distillery, there's actual distillers that have these portable like stills that they'll hook up to the back of a pickup truck and drive it to all these different family farms. Sounds a little moonshiny. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> it's a little moonshiny. That's why it's kind of like rugged and rustic. Yeah. And um, if you look up a picture of an Armagnac, uh, Alembic still is what they're called. It's a really unique process. I won't get into it now because it'll take too long. <laughs> but essentially, you've got a family where 80% of their production for grapes is going to go into wine. The remaining 20% they're going to distill on these Armagnacs. And this is the whole concept of value added ag. You know, they're not able to sell all the wine that they would make. So they make it into Armagnac and they don't touch it for 20 years. Jeez. And that's like what they send their kids to college on and stuff like that. You know, it's a long term investment. And so they start uh, the Armagnac distillation process once the kind of traveling still guy shows up at their place. <laughs> They've got all their wine made for Armagnac sitting in this big vat. And these things are actually wood burning stoves. Like that's the heat source. So they have an open flame around like three feet away. This 150 proof alcohol is coming off the still. I'm sure that's like smoking at a gas station. Right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it would be extremely frowned upon in the United States. <laughs> But because it's a protected domain and all these processes are extremely like protected and it's such a historical and cool thing that they do, that this is just the traditional way that it's done and it's always been done that way. So why are we going to change it? And what's cool about it is once they start that, uh, that flame, so they start the flame, La Flamme de l'Armagnac, that's how we came up with uh, La Flamme Reserve is once they start that flame, they have to distill all of their wine into Armagnac that they've got left because you can't stop that fire and then restart it again. You're going to lose a lot of the efficiency of that still and a lot of the flavors that kind of naturally come from this Olympic style. And so you have to start this thing and then run it continuously 24 hours a day, wow. seven days a week until you're completely out of wine and you've distilled all your Armagnac. Wow. So La Flamme de la Armagnac is the beginning. Like It's like a harvest party that they have when they start this fire burning still. And then they have people watching the still for like weeks until they've distilled everything. That's and, a really fun process. Yeah, it? it's a really cool. It's a really traditional method. And it's just an, and it's exciting experience because it is so traditional and it's so similar to kind of the methodology that we use. And you've got the flames right on the bottle. Too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the inspiration behind um, all of that. I want to get back into a little bit of the whiskey tasting. So what is, you know, we're, we're drinking it fully straight, fully neat right now. Some tastings I've been to have had a little eyedropper to, to dab some water in. What's kind of your take on that and how does that affect the process and and why is that a thing so the water is a cool thing it you drop it in the glass and it kind of changes the chemical makeup of it a little bit to some extent what you've got in solution is kind of alcohol molecules 
and ester molecules. And there's a bunch of different stuff going on in there, but this is the easiest way I can make this explanation is esters are all like the favorable flavors and alcohol is obviously alcohol. And so alcohol is a lighter, smaller molecule that sits on top of the glass and esters are heavier and denser though. So they kind of fall to the bottom. And then when you try it, alcohol usually evaporates out faster as well. So it's going to evaporate out. You're going to taste that alcohol first, and then you're going to kind of get those flavor favorable flavor molecules, those esters. So if you drop a little water into it, you'll break up that alcohol barrier a little bit and allow more of those favorable flavors to come to like the forefront of your palate. So when I'm doing analysis, I don't really do that, but it's a fun way to play around with. And like we were talking about earlier, kind of dig deeper into uh, those different flavors and kind of search a little bit more into your whiskey and what you can find. So in, in super simplistic terms, the alcohol in and of itself has, is more so that burn. So when you put the water in that sort of neutralizes the burn so that you can get the actual flavor of the whiskey a little bit more to the forefront yeah kind of that's pretty much it like you uh you flip how they come to your 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 palate okay in solution so instead of alcohol first and then esters you're still going to get alcohol but you might get you'll get more esters kind of at the forefront cool and so you we talked about the the bourbon in the the maple syrup uh, barrels and we've talked about the the four products of bourbon whiskey um, that you have right now are there are there other things other than than whiskey that you guys are trying or plan to try or um so we've got we've been putting away several like a bunch of rye whiskey every year okay we do have a little bit of uh brandy that we haven't released yet that we're kind of waiting to find the perfect moment to, to Sorry, push Wisconsin that of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a little different than what we all think of as brandy. It's like a 12-year-old brandy um kind of made in that French cognac style. So it'll be a little bit a little bit different. It's not going to be Corbel. I wouldn't mix it in old fashioned. <laughs> uh but we're working on that. Uh, I'd like to do some single malts in the future once we get uh, a distillery here. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, kind of the sky's the limit once we're producing stuff here on our own. So how (laughs) do you feel about the Wisconsin old-fashioned versus the... uh the old fashioned. I kind of, I kind of like them both. I mean, okay. it's sort of funny when people come from out of the state and are like, "You give them an old fashioned," and they're like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> uh, That's funny because then when Wisconsin people go to another state, they're like, "What the hell, <laughs> what is, the hell, this? hell is this?" <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of this funny anomaly that we have that's traditional. It's you know, it's all Midwest. Mm-hmm. You don't really get it outside of, I think they do some in Minnesota and a little bit in Michigan and like maybe down in Iowa, but it's, I think I haven't seen it outside of like those three States. Um, I don't know if about you guys, but Mm -hmm. it's sort of like that traditional drink of, of Wisconsin. And it's, it's interesting. And so it's one of our best selling cocktails downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) The Wisconsin old fashioned or like, uh, the one that we had and the Wisconsin are okay. usually kind of tied for first. The maple one, I would highly recommend. To yeah, everyone. it was good. It uh, I I can't remember offhand who 
was was here in the tasting room the last time I was here, and it might have been when I brought you, Cameron, um, doing the the tasting and the tour. But he he, he was so funny. He uh, had quite the rant about the Wisconsin old fashioned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I think he he was not from Wisconsin originally, maybe, and so just the. <laughs> You know the the comparison between Wisconsin old fashioned and all the stuff that goes into that yeah. versus you know a, a standard old fashioned <laughs> and where the old fashioned actually came from and 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 it how is funny. Wisconsin's messed it up <laughs> and we get it and we get a ton of people from all over the country which is kind of cool now yeah I mean like we said Epic draws a lot of people out here sure. that you know who else would come to Madison from california or you know unless they had family here mm-hmm. uh all my friends in college joked that this was just a flyover state so yeah i'm yeah. i'm very familiar with all of that um but it's cool to get people now coming here as like wow we're actually a destination like people are gonna come they're in chicago for a weekend and they're gonna make the trip up here just to see like jay henry and yeah, so we want to give awesome. them that traditional experience and i always say just try them side by side mm-hmm you know, there's no harm in that. If you don't like it, uh, I'll buy it. It's not that big. <laughs> and of then I'll kick you out. <laughs> yeah, definitely I mean, not. It's my words, not Joe's words. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but we try and do a lot of experimentation because we're really only allowed to sell what we make here. Mm-hmm. So we can't make like an old, like a Manhattan. Sure. Like we're very limited in the ingredients that we can use. Um, so we try and be as creative with what we got more or less. So yeah, we, we design a lot of drinks that are just, you know, if you just drink whiskey neat, like try this, it's spirit forward. If you've never had bourbon before in your life, like we've got a couple cocktails for you as well that people will really enjoy. Mm -hmm. So (coughs) Jonathan Jonathan got caught with the whiskey in the back of his throat. (laughs) It happens to the best. Uh, Well, on that note, and and, and to be cognizant of your time, Joe, <laughs> uh, the final question that we always ask people on Pour Another Round is, if you're not drinking your own product, so get Jay Henry out of the picture, what what do you find yourself drinking to, you know, take a, take a step away from work and just enjoy yourself? <laughs> um, well, everything, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I kinda, we kind of talked about this earlier, but it's, uh, I want to be the best, like, producer, blender whiskey maker that i can and you can't do that by just drinking your own product right so every time i can get my hands on something new that's been released into the market i'll usually go to a bar and try it because i want to know what other people are doing i try and talk to as many different producers and distillers as i can because you can you can always learn from everybody and I try and drink a lot of different, uh, different spirits, like different categories, you know, because you'll find, or at least I, I'm able to find similarities between, you know, like when, when we were doing this Armagnac project, there was a whole winter where I was just drinking vintage Armagnacs and that got really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, you I can expense that, right? <laughs> not all of it. Um, but a lot of that I had to research like, okay, what do we want our specific barrels to go into? What do we want our flavor profile to look like? We just got uh, a barrel of Tokai Hungarian dessert wine from a partnership with a restaurant down in Chicago, RPM Steakhouse. Uh, so I was drinking a ton of this 
like sweet dessert wine over the last couple months that I I had never even known existed. Like it's from this really s- small forest region in Hungary that I didn't even know existed until like a year ago when they, <laughs> when they brought this project idea to us. So I was drinking a ton of dessert wine, a ton of stuff like that. It's really just kind of what what is the next thing that we're going to do? And that's what I try and drink a lot of. And so I can acclimate myself with what do I want our product to taste like? How do I make this the best? I guess for right now, when it's really cold out, uh, I drink like a lot of high proof bourbon. So you're really always on. I try to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't look like an athlete, but you know, <laughs> I try and stay in shape most I, of the time. You stay in shape in a different way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, with a with a mature palate like your own, what is your reaction to Malort? Since you've been talking about Chicago here, um, so I lived in Chicago for like five years yeah. after I got out of college, and uh, I. That's one thing I I never really grew accustomed to. <laughs> I can see why people like it, but Thank I you. also don't really. I, un- don't. I don't know. It's not my thing. I get it. Cameron loves it. Oh really? Yeah, I do. Or yeah. he's just stubborn enough that he. It's no, weird I've how grown terrible it is. It, There's like five percent of the population that's like drawn to it. <laughs> Every- I had a roommate that was like that, and I just it, every was, time I see it in a bar, especially with with a new group of people first rounds on me all around <laughs> yeah it's terrible everybody thinks it's tequila and you just trick them right <laughs> yeah it's worse. I, I hate tequila and that's worse so. <laughs> is so joe is is it usually an old-fashioned if you're gonna have a cocktail with with your bourbon that you um, make or? this well i guess like we have a cool seasonal menu that we're running unfortunately tomorrow is the last day that we're going to be open until maybe February. Okay. Um, just because January we usually close. It's usually super cold. Nobody wants to go hang out in a Rick house <laughs> when it's five below. Um, builds character. Yeah. I I have to go pull samples out there. So it does build a lot of character. The bourbon will warm you up. Yeah. <laughs> Seasonally, we've got... Have you ever had a Tom and Jerry? Before? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we got some Tom and Jerry's from this old baker in Lodi. Uh, awesome. So we've got our own mix downstairs. Oh gosh, I love um, Tom and Jerry's. Rosemary uh, whiskey sour has been really popular, like a smoked rosemary old sour. We do like a cranberry bourbon spritz, which is mm-hmm. a little bit on the lighter side. Um, like if you're not looking for a big whiskey forward cocktail, that's an easy one that that you know it still has the essence of bourbon but yeah it's not gonna like knock your face off <laughs> and, i like my bourbon like that though yeah i knock, do too knocking your face <laughs> off. Right, <yeah. laughs> well joe thanks so much for for hanging out with us today it's it's truly been a pleasure and an honor to to be here um at yeah, Jay Henry and, and talking with you so i um, appreciate the time and and, and sharing all of the insider details on where Jay Henry came from and, and where you guys are headed and kind of where things are at right now. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me on. And uh, maybe when we get that maple barrel out, we'll get back on the show and talk about it. Sounds fantastic yeah, to me. Love that. Yeah. Um, so head to for, for all of our listeners. Um, you know, if you're, if you're in, in Wisconsin, in the area, definitely come to the Jay Henry tasting due tour while you're here in Dane, Wisconsin, or, or, you know, find Jay Henry on, on the shelves in retail or, or at uh, your local bar. And be sure to uh, pour another round for us when you're pouring out some of that Jay Henry. <laughs> awesome. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Joe. 
thanks for listening to this episode of Pour Another Round. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at Pour Another Round. We'll be sharing news and information from breweries who are friends of the show. You can also find out what we're drinking and hear about upcoming featured breweries as well. Until next time, be sure to pour yourself another round. <laughs>